Hello team and welcome to episode 424 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lysander Jim. Lysander is a board certified physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor who specializes in the treatment of lower back pain. It's highly likely that at some point in our lives, we've experienced back pain, specifically lower back pain. And unfortunately, if we've seen our doctor, we've probably ended up with a prescription to treat the pain, which only leads to a short-term solution. Lysander treatment goes far deeper than this and looks at everything from your biomechanics, posture, movement, and corrective exercise to heal your back issues and avoid surgery or medication. In this episode, you can expect to learn how to determine if our back pain is genuinely a back issue or if it's actually linked to something else, why too much bending, twisting, and loading could be causing disc bulges, along with the exercises that you absolutely should be doing in the gym and the ones that you must avoid to protect your spine. So without further ado, Dr. Lysander Jim. Lysander Jim, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Elliot. Hey, the pleasure is truly mine. And I was just saying to you off air that I'm amazed that we have not discussed back pain in depth on this show just yet. So I'm excited to have you on to talk everything about that world, to dive deep and to really get an understanding of what things cause it, what we should be avoiding in the gym, etc. And hopefully we can come away with a lot more knowledge on an area that seems so well known, but perhaps isn't as well discussed as it should be. But before we do dive into that, I want to give the listeners a bit of context. So can you explain who you are and what it is that you do? I'm a spine physician. I, I work out of the United States in, um, in the LA County and I've been treating back pain for about 10 years now. And recently I wrote a book called Specific Spine, which details my kind of first part of my career where I was a, a standard chronic pain clinician, which our main job is really writing you know, scripts for painkillers and opioids and transitioning from that for about the last you know, almost seven years now, treating patients with kind of a root cause approach that focuses on the physical effects of how back injury starts and physically how they can heal it in a way that doesn't depend on painkillers, injections, and in many cases, helping patients avoid their surgeries. Yeah, I like that approach a lot. And what led you to this industry in this world in the first place? Was it always something that you desired? Or is it something that came up in your teenage years? What specifically drew you towards this industry? Well, getting to the healthcare industry was, I think, a few jumps. So first, I I had bad dental issues as a child. And so learning that eating a ton of candy was bad for my teeth was, as a child, a revelation. So I think for a number of years, I stopped eating candy, but I, there was that sense of, it's almost like a miracle. Like you can change just one thing or one aspect that's your lifestyle, and then you can actually kind of fix a problem. So I think that I had this interest in health. I was a runner in high school. I, I did some kind of weight training, kind of like very amateurish bodybuilding, like the high school level type, wow. you know, where you're trying to look fit. And then so then those kind of things are in themselves very revelatory and transformational too, to kind of just be kind of make your body healthy. And when I started college, I think I kind of knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I just didn't have any confidence that I could do it because it always makes it sound like the hardest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it is hard, but then it's, it's doable. So about halfway through college, I, I realized that if I didn't really direct myself toward a field where my love of learning and my, uh, my love of health intersected and all this learning 
I did would largely wouldn't be wasted because I could always apply it to myself, but it wouldn't a lot of what I learned would be trivia. And so that idea and just very broadly kind of led me to just commit to becoming pre-med, then a med student. And and from there, I wanted to do a field where I could help people's ultimate health. And then so in the medical realm, one way to define that is based on the idea of function. So how does a person's in any system work, their joints, their heart, and the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation, it's a field that is generalized based on a functional outcome, and it's not divided by the organ system or the disease. And I love that it wasn't, we use drugs and we use pharmaceutical approaches and interventions, but I, I like that it had this strong connection to physical movement and other types of rehabilitation and neurological training. And, and from there, I became a chronic pain doctor. And that was sort of a mismatch for me because I didn't want to treat a symptom. And that's largely what you know most chronic pain doctors do. And that's kind of the height of the criticism of the opioid epidemic when I came out of my residency. And so my patients, they were feeling better to some extent, or at least that's what they told me. And you know I prescribed these medications safely, but I, I felt very burnt out doing it. And so there was a local sports medicine doctor who told me about the McGill method and low back disorders, which is a textbook by Professor Stuart McGill, who is a professor of biomechanics and, and a, a leading clinician. And in reading that book, it, it describes everything I hated about my original job. It's not focused on root causes. It's overly dependent on MRIs, overly dependent on painkillers. And that describes my professional life. And so if you had told me you can precisely diagnose and treat back pain at a root cause level and help most patients avoid surgeries who had already been told they needed surgery, I would have been very skeptical. But then I, I just started learning more, taking the courses. I, I became a master clinician um, after it was like a couple of years, I believe. And then being able to even diagnose somebody at first felt like that revelation, that kind of miracle feeling like, oh, I was taught that most people can't be diagnosed. And now I can diagnose them. And most of our patients are able to either progress out of their pain with natural methods. And in a few cases, I'm able to direct them to a right surgery, maybe a surgery they hadn't been told they needed. You know, maybe they've been told you need a disc replacement, but they actually just need, I don't know, like a cyst drainage or other cases. They were told they needed a particular surgery, but just didn't trust the original doctor. And I could explain to them kind of cogently, hey, if you don't do the surgery, this is what's could happen to you. And so some, so it's a very, I think, a, a great marriage of kind of all the tools of medicine, but trying to use the most efficient tools first. Sometimes the most sensible, efficient tool is surgery. Many times it's not. Do you have to go through a lot of mindset switching of the clients that you work with as well? Because I'm sure they're used to going to see physicians like you were at the start of your career who give them pills who give them immediate pain relief and maybe you are prescribing a ultimately long-term much more beneficial approach but something that maybe doesn't feel as immediately good as just taking some painkillers for example do you have to kind of create that mindset switch because it's very similar with the industry that i'm in when it comes to fat loss right there's a very, very big temptation for many people to go do this crash diet, to head in a direction where they slash their calories, they lose a ton of weight, but ultimately we all know where that ends up. But if I go down the route of saying, okay, well, we're gonna take a more steady approach, but this is going to serve you long-term, it comes to a lot of people in a way that's really welcomed because they're like, I want something to stick. But at the same time, there's also that desire for those instantaneous results that you do get from these more 
kind of erratic and more short-term mindset ideas. So do you have a tough time with kind of transition the mindset from immediate relief to long-term yet permanent relief? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do think about the patient's mindset a lot in terms of whether they need to be shifted off of a pharmaceutical approach. For people who seek me out, they, it's sort of a self-selecting process because we're, you know, we don't take insurance. We tell patients upfront our initial consultation is three hours. And we talk about, you know, on our website and other materials that we're trying to take a root cause approach and we don't manage your medication, you know, for in most cases for for pain. And I think that, you know, as a pain clinician before, if I mean, if I had said to my old kind of patient base, just, hey, don't take this medication, you need this, then you're constantly you're this gatekeeper to you're literally as a, a physician, you're a gatekeeper to free opioids. Mm. So it's kind of it's kind of a disjunct. So the people who seek us out, they're not of that mindset. And, sure. and a lot of them come in and they said, if anything, they're trying to change the mindset of their other physicians. They go into an area and they say, oh, I'm dog, I'm struggling with a lot of pain. Oh, here's a prescription for Vicodin. And then the patient says, no, 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 I don't want, I don't want these painkillers. I want to get better. Yep. And then the doctor, they said a lot of times their doctors get very befuddled. Like everyone's trying to you know, get opioids from me. Like, why, why aren't you? So in that front, there's not as much of a mindset switch. But the mindset switches happen more in their beliefs about what posture, what constitutes good posture, okay. what constitutes good movement, good rehabilitation, how much exercise. I think we get a good number of exercise addicts. They're working out way too much and driving themselves into um, pain and injury. And so I think the mindset shift is kind of a little bit sometimes away from this really admirable kind of warrior mentality that they bring to their life and their businesses and their personal lives. But when you take that David Goggins approach into your physical approach, I mean, and I, I very much admire him, by the way, but I think as a philosophy of redlining your physical capability, that's actually not the route to, to health and longevity. And so I think a lot of times, ironically, I think your standard patient population, you have to encourage them, hey, you got to walk more, you got to exercise more. And there's some patients who need some of that encouragement. But the other group, they actually need our discouragement. Hey, you got to, you know, maybe you don't have to PR every week, you know, maybe this approach, I know, like, look at all these like end plate fractures on your MRI, you know, where those come from, <laughs> you know, like, so it's, it's like, there's a lot of those mindset shifts. And even something as you know, they think they have the greatest posture ever. And then I'm, I'm telling them, no, no, you're, you're kind of a little bit too erect. You're really stressing your spine in these different ways. So I think it's sometimes there's like, there's definitely this unlearning process of what they learned online from professionals, other doctors, and trying to say, I can prove to you oftentimes that what you believe is actually wrong, because I can take you into that position and increase your pain. So what does that mean to you when, when that happens? Or I could take you out of that position and very quickly you'll be notice, hey, actually I move smoother and I'm in less pain. And so those kind of little insights and aha moments for the patients are very exciting. I can show them, I don't just have to tell them. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea and concept that you have there because of so many people are willing to take the David Goggins approach. They're willing to redline when it comes to the activity they do, but they're not willing to redline when it comes to their recovery and all the things that they need in order to support that level of training or that level of warrior mindset that they take themselves into the gym to because of when you look at an athlete for example they look like they do a ton of activity and that's because they do they train twice a day etc etc but you don't recognize that outside the time the two hours a day or two hours in the morning two hours in the evening that they're spending in the gym they're doing 
two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening of recovery work and corrective work. And I think that that's the biggest discrepancy that people, especially the general population and those who are leaning towards being passionate about the gym, but not actually athletes per se, have the issue of is that they're willing to put those three hours into their training, but they're not willing to put the three hours into the recovery. So when people ask me, is that ever such thing as overtraining, I prefer the idea that it's probably more likely to look like under recovery versus overtraining. So I like that concept that you mentioned as well. And I think that we're just missing that ratio as well. So coming into back pain, that's a very generic and broad term. How do you go about diagnosing it and categorizing what back pain truly is? Because of a lot of times we hear back pain, but a lot of this is originating in the hamstring or it's originating somewhere else in the body. So how do we know what back pain truly is? Back pain is usually defined as pain in the kind of back area. If we're talking about low back pain, it would be kind of between the lower ribs and the top of the glutes. So usually it could be pain in that region or pain arising from damage in that region. So for example, sciatica, it's, it doesn't hurt necessarily in the back because it's, but it's a nerve that's being maybe pressed by a disc bulge that's then shooting pain there. Sure. And in terms of knowing, I mean, that's a very foundational question. Like, what, how do you know something is back pain? How do you, I not know it's a leg pain? And then so the clue is usually in the pain pattern. And so that's a combination that I think your doctor usually figures out by a medical interview. Oh, when did it start? And, you know, where does it hurt? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Versus, and, and, and in addition, there would be the physical examination well, let me check your knee, maybe let me check your hip, and then and I'll check things that relate to the spine and nerve tension. So then you're kind of converging on the structure, for example. And mm -hmm. the reason it's such a big deal is when somebody has a back pain, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds of causes that can cause back pain. So we've seen back pain cases who had blood clots in their lungs. You know, the lungs are kind of generally in the back area or, or close to it. We've seen people with gynecologic issues like ovarian cysts, mm -hmm. uterine fibroids. Uh, we've seen people with uh, hip injuries too. I actually saw a child recently who they had a, uh, a cartilage injury, a very severe cartilage injury. And then so all of these things could be mistaken for back pain if um, the clinician isn't thinking about it. And it's by no means obvious oftentimes. And in, in my field of uh, PMNR, physical medicine and re rehab, we often talk about when you have pain in the particular joint, you often have to think about whether that pain can be originating from a nearby joint. So if you have back pain, maybe look at the th low back pain, thoracic spine, and maybe the hip, maybe you sometimes have to go down to the knee. And so we've seen multiple of um, these presentations that can happen in addition to their back pain that they have, or it's actually the whole presentation is a hip pain problem that looks like a back injury. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So some deep analysis has to be done in order to actually correct what is going on and not just where the pain is originating from, essentially. So I like that approach a lot. And when it comes to what causes back pain predominantly, I think that there's some ideas that we probably know about. So can you go through some of the most common causes of back pain and some of the things that might surprise us that usually are the culprit. The most common cause of back pain is some form of disc injury. And the surprising thing about disc injury in general, at least in the initial period, does not hurt at all. And so that that's often very surprising to people. And it's been proven over and over. I mean, that type of study is easy to do. You collect a cohort of patients who've never had significant back pain currently or in the past. You get an MRI of their spine 
And lo and behold, you'll see a lot of them have disc bulges. And so that creates a lot of confusion for both patients and clinicians. Well, why, why would a disc get injured and be bulged but not hurt? That's one of the central questions in our field. And the answer is, is actually rather simple, but it took me years to formulate how to express it simply. The disc is one of the largest structures that where most of it doesn't have nerve endings. So just like when you clip, when you get to trim your hair or cut your nails, these tissues are living in the sense that they're growing and they, they're, they're not fully dead. And the, the disc is very much in a live tissue, but because it acts as a, space, as a spacer and a pressure chamber of sorts. So when you get load, that, that disc gets very turgid and high pressure. It actually is a hostile environment for little blood vessels and little nerve endings. And so if somebody, let's just say, tears the outer wall of the disc or, you know, creates a bulge because they're bending around too much, it actually often doesn't hurt. It only starts to hurt once it starts to impact a tissue that does have nerve endings. Right. So, for example, the tops and bottom of, of the disc are called the end plates. It's a very thin area of, you know, it's about the width of a scalpel's plate. So very narrow area on the top of bottom of each disc. So if those areas get damaged, then you're going to feel pain. Or the classic one most people have heard of is sciatica, when that disc bulge poke protrudes far out far enough and hits a spinal nerve in the back, then that's the onset of gluteal pain and sciatic pain. Another kind of leading cause of, of these pains are what well, we talked kind of briefly about end plate injury, which is the top and bottom of each disc. That's the structure that is often, it's rarely discussed, but it's actually one of the most, it's the most vulnerable part of your disc and one of the most vulnerable parts of your spine. So if I describe this injury mechanism, let's say of, well, the person doesn't have pain going down their leg, so it's not I mean, let's just say, assume here it's not sciatica, but they just put too much weight on the back squat and then they felt their back kind of pop and go out mm -hmm. and it feels sore for the next few weeks and months. That's probably some degree of end plate injury. It's really what are the tissues that are getting loaded with that particular movement. And so usually the weakest one is going to give out or the one that you stress too much is going to give out. So I think that another group of injuries we see these in certain types of athletes like gymnasts and baseball players, wrestlers, is damage to the back of the spine, the bone in the back of the spine. So the one of the names is spondylolysis, which or spondylolysis, which is a, a fracture of the um, a ring of uh, of bone behind the vertebral body. And the reason that these injuries converge into these different fitness groups is one is you have to have a certain type of body to do certain types of sports. Mm, that's true, yeah. So then including your spine. So there's some, so a gymnast, for example, a baseball player, they're going to have a decent amount of rotational movement in the spine, which is, is actually helpful for their sport, but it also predisposes them to certain types of injury versus a, uh, an NFL lineman who there's like a forward and back force. So they don't have to rotate very much, but if their spine can't take that forward and back force, they're going to get into um, back pain pretty quickly. So I think it's, so then the surprising thing is sometimes the, the gift you have that allows you to do that thing, it comes associated with the vulnerability. And then that vulnerability is sometimes increased because then when you're in that special group, you're going to do, if you're a gymnast, you're going to do way more bending than the average person who's a couch potato. And so your risk of that injury actually goes up much higher than if you didn't do that special thing. So I think that one thing that's very difficult for people to reconcile is to realize that 
a lot of competitive endeavor comes with a lot of high risk of injury. People in the field kind of know that jujitsu players are always talking about their neck and their spine and their knee injuries now with all the leg locks. And in the, the weightlifters, they have their own, oh, they're, they're very scared of disc bulges. And then these other athletes have their kind of slippage injuries. So I think it's everything is clustering because of the unique body and the excessive loading people are putting in. And I think that might be surprising to a lot of people is that injuries are actually predictable. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense that people kind of have this awareness that sport can be on the outside looking in when you look at someone's body or the movements that their body can do, for example, it usually looks very, very healthy. And you're like, ah, he's an athlete. He must be healthy. Ah, this guy's got a six pack. He must be healthy. But the reality is, is actually when you look beneath the surface, the activity that they're doing or what is required to make sure that they have that six pack, if they're not genetically gifted and there will be the genetic outliers who can just handle, you know, and we see it all the time. There's one football or soccer player who's injured every two weeks and then there's this other guy who plays endless games and never gets injured and i think there's obviously a genetic component there as well maybe there's you know interventions of how they look after themselves factored in as well but probably a big genetic component too but yeah i think realistically it's quite a common misconception that the people who look healthiest who are able to do these amazing things with their body actually causes them the most harm as well but i want to take it away from the athlete population for a second and bring it back to the everyday gym goer let's say or the person who's maybe just doing some exercise from time to time you said the couch potato as well because those are the type of people that come to your mind you don't think of the athlete with the back pain you might see them injured but you think of the guy who's maybe a little bit overweight and every time he stands up from his desk, he's holding his back. Or you think about the person who's maybe an intermittent gym goer who's coming away and saying, okay, I'm out again because of this back injury as well. What's causing them to have those is those issues with their disc bulges and what is leading them to ultimately being out of action for you know weeks at a time? I would say the general answer to that is usually most of these type of back injuries are physical injuries. So they come from too much bending, too much twisting, too much loading. And, and then that word too much is a very fraught term because it's too much for that person and their spine. And, you know, maybe they could have done it when they're 20, but they can't do it now. Or maybe they did too much in their 20s and now they're 60 and there's going to be certain consequences for earlier overload. Sure. Just like you use your hands too much, you load your hand too much, you know, for 20, 30 years, don't do anything for 20 years you can still get pretty bad arthritis at the end of it. There's sort of this joint tissue muscle memory. There's kind of that, it's your, your overall health is kind of like a legacy of all the, your genetics with everything it interacted with in the past. So I think the big question, I think the key insight about how people, why people stay in pain is they are either bending, twisting, loading their spine in excess of what it can currently tolerate. And most of the time, this is unwitting. They, for example, when you use standing, for example, I have some people, they say, I hurt when I get out of bed and I, or I hurt in the morning. So I'll ask them, well, just let me slow you down there. So when you open your eyes in the morning and you're laying in bed, are you in pain already? They say, no. And then I said, well, when do you feel pain first? They say, well, it's immediately when I stand up from the bed. And I say, right that moment, they say, right that moment. So that cues me in, hey, that's probably an instance of how they're standing. Maybe they're locking out their hips too much and extending their spine. Or another pattern might be, no, I stand up, I'm fine. But it's just as I stand and I do my morning things, very slowly it starts to creep up. It's not that sudden onset. 
So then that tells you, okay, maybe there's some sort of accumulation of something. It could be, well, because they're bending a lot to, you know, wash their face and you know do their toiletries. And so those different pain patterns kind of suggest types of injury mechanisms. And then you can kind of further refine that by saying, well, um, where does it hurt you when you say it hurts you in the morning? Is it down the leg? Is it in the back, et cetera? And then those other clues can give you this roadmap of what's causing you pain. So if you have the roadmap of what's causing you pain in a very precise way, then you can actually build the, the roadmap out of pain in most cases. And I think some, some of your listeners might be thinking, well, what if everything I do, it hurts very severely and no matter what I do, it hurts. I would, I would venture to say that's rarely the case. And if it is the case, then you may have what's called a red flag condition. So red flag conditions could be a spine conditions that's just so bad that no matter how you change your position, the loading doesn't change much. Maybe it's a bulge that is just pushed all the way back into the spinal canal, creating a dangerous nerve compression. Or it could be a blood clot to the lungs, or it could be, we, you know, sadly, we've diagnosed a few cases of cancer or lymphoma that's infiltrated the bone in the sacrum. And then you'll get very bizarre pain patterns there where maybe they'll come to your clinic and say, I have no pain at all. And then I'll do every loading test and they'll have no pain. But they say, but it hurts tremendously at night and I can't escape that pain at night. But I couldn't create one tick of pain, uptick of pain at all on the exam. I, so when I saw that person, I was said, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. You really need to scan much more of your body. It, this could be a cancer or other presentation that we're missing. And it, you know, sadly, it turned out to be a, a fate, what was very rapidly fatal um, lymphoma in, in that elderly man's case. Wow. Yeah, it's insane of how these things can develop and how when they're not diagnosed, they can lead to, like you said, fatality ultimately as well. So it's definitely something that we need to be aware of. And a question that came to my mind, and you mentioned it was kind of subjective as well, is how do we know what is too much? And the biggest challenge here is, like you said, maybe it wasn't too much in my teenage years, but it's too much in my 30s. Maybe it wasn't too much in my 20s, but it's now too much in my 50s. I imagine our ability to tolerate load, the amount of bending and twisting that we do, you know, essentially, I think I heard an analogy recently. It's like if you open and close a, you know, a kitchen drawer, it's not going to be as smooth and efficient as it was the first time you did it, the thousandth time you've done it. So how do we kind of know where we're at in terms of the longevity and the essentially the resilience that our spine has when it comes to all these day-to-day -day movements that we go through? The guiding sign is pain. Mm. If you're and pain, I'll describe it briefly because sometimes. Some of the patients will quibble about me. Well, what is pain? What if it's an ache? What if it's a discomfort? What if it's as like, okay, it's all pain. It's just, what is pain? Pain, pain is described in the, the kind of medical term. It's just, it's some unpleasant sensory stimuli. And it could actually be physical or mental. But then, um, so I think that using pain as kind of the North Star of what's bad for you and what's good for you, it often works. It usually works better for what's bad for you. So if you do an activity, so the question could be, well, if I'm doing a sit up and it hurts my back, shooting pain down my leg, then that's, that's proof that you're probably stimulating your pain trigger. You're hurting yourself more. But then sometimes people come, come back and say, well, it doesn't hurt when I do the sit up, but you know, like two hours later, my back might be more likely to go out. So that too is kind of another indication of, you know, that increased sense of fragility or the pain itself. And so sometimes people will say, hey, I have that, these like step counters. I notice if I walk 500 steps, I feel great. But then the next day I increased my step count and then my back went out. So I went back down and I worked my way to 500 and then I, and beyond and then my back went out again. A lot of times what that indicates is one is 
there's this misunderstanding that if you're in not in pain, then your back condition is you're free and clear, but you're not free and clear. When your pain winds down, that's a good thing. But the healing, that robustness that you need, it actually is a, a largely a silent process. So it's kind of like the absence of pain with your, you know, postures, movements, activities, exercise, you know, so then I think that that's often how we guide patients and, and that, and then that's using pain in a very specific way. So I think you can use pain as, as a challenge to yourself. You could say, I have pain and I'm going to push through this pain because, you know, I'm, I'm that I'm tough. But when you're, when it comes to spine rehabilitation, that's one of the worst things you can do. And, and that's actually a shock to some patients. They, they just have this general, it's almost like a life philosophy. I, I push, I'm the kind of guy or gal, I push through things. And then it's just like, well, in this domain, that's keeping you in pain. And then they say, oh, actually, yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, my stretches do hurt and this therapy or that therapy does kind of hurt me too. And then I, and I say, yeah, there's a reason for that. Like your, your spine is telling you it doesn't like it. Just like when you touch a stove, why do we have pain evolutionary? It actually, it, it alerts us to their being harm to us and then so we kind of ideally withdraw from it we don't try to lean into it yeah i think that's a really good thing for people to think about it's just more of an indicator that something might not be right here and obviously we don't want people to run away from the first signs of pain but if it's chronic if it's in super super intense because realistically the first time someone does a deadlift for example they might have some lower back soreness because we have muscles in our back, right? So the natural soreness we feel is not necessarily because deadlifting isn't for them. They might do it in a perfect way, but they just feel a bit of soreness in their erectors and their lats because they haven't contracted them like that in you know 10 or 15 years, for example. But it's when it becomes chronic, it's when it becomes intense or maybe like a shooting uh, style of pain. That's when we should be more aware of it. Is, am I correct in saying that? I would say it depends. I mean, the discomfort associated with using something, I mean, that... No, that's not necessarily harmful. I mean, so I've had patients tell me that when I, you know, teach them, well, this is how this is a better way for you to stand. They say, oh, it's funny. I now I I feel like my calves feel a little bit sore on both sides. So then usually, if if it is a distinguishing between kind of just use muscle soreness, um, which is it should be mild, and I think in almost every case it should be mild yeah. if if, a, if someone's being progressed appropriately. Um, I think uh, so a little bit of that is okay, but I think there are some ways that people can think about it is one is usually with back pain, you have primary symptoms. So meaning you have, it hurts in a particular place or region and it hurts in a particular way. So with your activity, I think the clearest sign is, is it provoking your primary symptom? And I think like what you're matching uh, is, and if there is a discomfort, is it the regular use discomfort, which I think most of your clients know about, or is this in an expected region for that load? So I think that it's uh, it, it takes a, a bit of discernment in in terms of figuring it out. But I think the I think the good trainers are always kind of cognizant of what's what's real use kind of discomfort and what's I'm putting the person in pain. And the bad trainers I see they just keep pushing their their athlete further and further into pain. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really important to first understand the distinction between the two. And then after that, be very, very aware of your limitations, your capabilities, and also the progressive nature of things as well. I think that there's always this temptation to rush into things or load up too quickly. I think that's a big thing when it comes to the industry that I'm in. There's always this temptation to lift heavier and to do more and to kind of break and bend ourselves in different ways when realistically 
I don't think that that's, I think that's maybe a big missing piece of the puzzle when it comes to training is longevity. I think a lot of us think, okay, well, how's the session going to go today? Not will I still be able to do this type of session in 20 or 30 years? And I think that's probably, you know, the root cause of the majority of things in life is not thinking about how our actions today influence our actions ultimately 20 years down the line. But I think that's a big one when it comes to the training side of things and longevity as well. I think that's a mindset switch that I've had. I was training since I was about I want to say 14 to 15 years old. So I know that I've already done a lot more training than, you know, if someone starts in their thirties, by the time they get to 45, I've already done more training than they have. So I need to be aware that I'm going to train through my thirties and my forties as well. So I've already done a lot of the load that some people would have done in their lifetime. And so I have to be aware of that when it comes into moving into my thirties, et cetera, in regards to what can I cope with now based on the fact that I'm already 15 years into this training journey as well. Is that something that most people should be aware of as well? If they maybe did a lot of sports at school and they went all the way through their adult, like early adult life, uh, someone, as someone who did a lot of training or a lot of sport. Oh, absolutely. Because if you did a lot of training in particular ways, then there's already some mileage on certain tissues in, you know, your, you know, it could be your back or your other joints. And then, so maybe people when they're younger, they have a, a performance domain. They would have to be a good baseball player. And then, and then so the demands they needed for that sport are very different from the demands they need now as, you know, maybe like a middle, middle age family man, you know, who's, you know, running a business or something like that. So it's, yeah, you, you kind of want to think about why you're training oftentimes, because you're absolutely right with, What's the point? Let's say you could train me for the next two years and get me into the best shape of my life. What's the point if I stop training at the end of the two mm -hmm. years? Like, or if I eat well for the next two years and then I'm a slob like afterward? I think it's really the the consistency that that kind of brings the the long term results and the magic in, in in the long run. And then so I, so with let's say somebody is in their I don't know 60s or 70s or beyond, the first thing I tell them often is you know they're focused, they're here for their back. And I, I just try to tell them, well, what's the number one thing I can do to help you? I'll just kind of quiz them on it. And then they'll usually, you know, have some answer. And then I'll say, and it, almost no one gets it right. But the first priority is actually to prevent a fall. That's one of the leading causes of death in that patient population. And so some, some of these people, they're very, um, their, their movement is actually very degraded. Their balance is very off. And others will have very smooth balance and motion. But even for them, you know, I, I'll tell them, well, if you have this, beautiful rug in your living room. That's a, that's a liability. If you have pets, don't get rid of your pets, but you got to be very careful about if they're underfoot and how you're kind of moving around when you're um, near them because they're a frequent cause of falls and injuries too. So I think it's kind of that PM&R background kind of kicking in. It's just like, well, what, what do you really need to be kind of healthy in, in kind of the, the full physical sense? And that may connect to metabolic things. Like sometimes patients will come in and they're they're so cardiovascular deconditioned. Their blood pressure is high. They're huffing and puffing after, you know, a 10 second plank or something. So I'll tell them, it's like, well, you're, you're going to be limited by this until you kind of get your blood pressure under control. And, and, you know, as you know, the leading cause killer in, in our most developed countries is heart disease. So then you really want to not, you know, you know, want to put the main things first. And so I think that when you kind of think about how, when I try to think about what I educate people on, there's certainly a whole universe of healthy things that a person could do, but really what's most relevant is what's gonna have minimal risk and what's gonna give you the maximum kind of benefit for your situation. And so why, like, what do we, like, what do we really need? We really need to stay pain-free. We need to be able to, you know, be good parents and partners and et cetera. 
and then and then we want to kind of have sound body sound mind that's really most people but i think the way they're training it's almost like they're secretly preparing for an underground stage fight or something <laughs> it's like are you getting so big and strong and you're go you know you're rolling four times a week <laughs> so i think that's why people probably responded to a fight club people laugh at fight club and how extreme it is but i think a lot of people secretly have uh -huh. that you know they're they're like there's like some sort of demon that they're exercising. And um, yeah, I just tried to point that out to them. And, and it's not always a well-received message, no. but hey, it's just like, I'm here to tell you the truth, you know, not to tell you what you want to hear. And people kind of bargain with me like, well, if I do this, can I do this? And can I do this? It's like, you're, you have to bargain with your biology. I'm, I'm just a messenger based on what I know. I'm not always dead on about what you can do, but even if I'm wrong, let's just say I think your limit is here and I tell and I want people to train under the limit. You can't kind of, um, you know, redline things. So then even if I if I under train you to some extent and you're a normal person, then you're actually going to win. But if I over train you, you're going to get hurt and, and then you'll be worse off than if you were a little bit under trained. And so even the athletes will say this. They'll say if you actually overtrain, that's way more dangerous than if you under trained a bit. Because then you're 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 gonna you've broken yourself down and then now you have to compete for sure and you've got higher risk of injury as well and what's the most important thing like you said the most important thing to an elderly person is to not fall the most important thing to an athlete yes it's high performance but it's actually being able to perform because you're not injured because if you are injured you can't play or you can't fight or you can't do whatever sport that you are competing in so I think that's a big big aspect is like you might feel like you're getting a little less of an advantage by not being in the gym for seven hours a day but just by toning it back a little bit you are actually able to perform at your very best like you said you're going in rested and you're kind of at that peak capacity without going overboard and i like that ideal of idea of mileage as well understanding that we do have a certain amount of mileage and you know if we are people who have exercised early stages of our life then our, we might have worked through a lot of that mileage already so we've got to be aware and also as you said we go through different seasons of life like when i was a lot younger i would have been more than happy to go to the gym five or six times a week but a it's just not practical now but b if i wanted to do that i don't think that i would be training in the same way I, I don't think my body would be able to take it the same way it would have done 15 years ago so i think it's really really important to reflect on like what are you doing this for and like you said a lot of people are training for that underground cage fight without really realizing it so i, I really like that so let's take it to the gym i think a lot of my listeners would be really interested in about certain exercises that are essentially ones that you would encourage people to do to protect their spine, to keep them functional, to keep them healthy. And then maybe other exercises that in your eyes are maybe no-goes. I'm sure this is all context dependent, but if you can keep this as broad as you can, but without giving us too many like absolute black and whites. I'll start with a couple of general, uh, general principles. So then the spine, unlike your other joints, you exercise your elbow, your biceps, what do you do? you take your arm through a range of motion. You take, you put some weight in it and then you kind of bend it through. The spine works from a different principle. It actually likes to work most and is safest as a stabilizer. So the kind of prototypical spine exercise in the new, in the old age, it was a sit up. Sit up is, is a, to kind of give a harmful example, you're actually taking load, you're bending your spine, so which puts a lot of stress on the disc. So it's actually a great way to create a disc injury. So what, what's helpful instead is exercises that are more in the isometric pattern. So meaning your other joints might be moving. So when you're in a plank, you get into the position and nothing moves. You're basically resisting a type of force. So a lot of the best exercises for the spine are isometric. 
So a very easy one is, for example, band hold. I'm just standing there, I just pull a band hold, you know, pull elastic bands down and hold it. And so that's going to be a core challenge, not just an arm challenge, because you're thinking, well, my arm is stabilizing it to me. So, well, what do you think stabilizing your arm, so your, your core and your trunk and your legs? Mm -hmm. So that's a that's an easy one that uh, some of our even our sickest patients can do. And then certain types of planks, there's a lot of variations on the walls, very easy, and you can make it infinitely hard on a bench is, you know, a bit harder on the floor is, is yet harder. Um, that's another series that some patients do. Uh, the, in general, the ones with the best risk benefit analysis is so, so-called McGill Big Three. And so these are the bird dog, which is an exercise that's done on all fours with an arm, you know, an, an arm and or a leg out, the side plank and an exercise called the modified curl where somebody's in kind of like a sit up position with one leg bent, but then they kind of, uh, they're, but then they're holding, they're rising up through the sternum. So the mid back and just holding that position, the low back doesn't actually move. So those are uh, on average, the uh, the three high yield exercises that are safe for many people, except the, the particularly sick. And what about specific quote unquote lower back strengthening exercises? Like when someone goes on a hip extension and they go and they get into that position where they're looking to really contract the lower back or another one that comes to my mind is potentially something like a deadlift where someone says, okay, it's going to strengthen my lower back. Fantastic. Um, and maybe even something like a Superman, for example, as well, where you're lying in a prone position you're lifting up your arms and legs in order to contract your lower back what are your thoughts on those specific exercises and should we be looking to try and strengthen our lower back in those type of ways i would say for the average person no if there's a special performance demand and some of them like a squat a deadlift has a role for certain types of um, performance domains um, and then to supermans we would almost never advise it because you're taking your spine into uh, and what's called an extension bend where your spine is arching and you're doing it under high load. And usually that exercise, it's when you think about what's the benefit from doing it, the benefit is not necessarily there the way it could be for a squat and a deadlift done properly. But as you described it with kind of that lockout mechanics, I think you were almost, it's almost, almost to me like an extension question. Can I lock out and arch my spine at the end? That's a very dangerous thing to do. That's that's actually a great way to create injury of your discs and of your of the neural arches. And that's one of the primary corrections we have to help our patients with is even when people don't know this, but when they're rising from a chair, if they do it properly, that's actually a squat. Yeah. That's very so true. then when that patient I talked about earlier, who uh, they they're kind of getting up from bed and they're having uh, that pain right away, that zinger, it's usually because they're locking out. So I think that. The extension question you asked is, it's extremely insightful because I think that is probably the most overlooked postural and movement error that's actually driving many people's pain based on the patients we've seen. So we, uh, it's rare that a week goes by where we're not correcting um, that. Yeah, and it's amazing because you'll look around in the gym today and you're at least going to find one or two people doing those type of movements. It really won't be a surprise to you whatsoever. So I think there's a lot of educating to do. And I think the challenge with the gym is that majority of people believe that you know if my body can move in this way then i can go about and train it in this way and the biggest issue i have and the things that i say to a lot of my clients is that and this is probably going to be the last section of this podcast in regards to posture is that 
already your posture is not in a favorable position and you're already you've done a lot of wear and tear to your body through the twisting through the bending and everything along those lines and now you're going into exercises which you can't necessarily maintain a good posture and now you're loading them and that tends to be the challenge so that's why you know we need to be wise about not just throwing you under the bar and doing a barbell back squat from day one but maybe a goblet squat or even just a bodyweight squat to a box to begin with is probably going to be more advantageous and they're like well, where's the intensity? And it's like, once again, the intensity cannot be really be there until we know that you're moving in the correct way. And I think that that's, again, some of the mindset thing that I said to you at the very, very beginning of like making sure that people are thinking longevity, they're thinking about long-term and not short-term here because the temptation will be just to go under the bar like we did 20 years ago in squat. But ultimately, we know what's going to happen there. And something that comes to my mind when we speak about the squat as well is another thing that a lot of people experience, which is the butt wink, which is what is commonly called. And where kind of your lower back kind of rounds over. It's not a very pretty looking thing when you actually see it within a within a squat (laughs) pattern as well. But basically, you come down to the bottom and then it kind of rounds over and then you kind of do that reverse as you come back up. Talk to me about the butt wink, why that might be problematic. Is it problematic? What is your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, the butt wink is, is very problematic. So it combines two of the worst things for your back. So bending your spine, if it's low load, you can safely do it if your spine is healthy. And taking load, your spine can take, safely take on a decent amount of load if, it's, if your spine is in its neutral position. But so there's this concept of power. So power in the physical sense means it's kind of a, a thing that relates to um, kind of movement and load, right? That's kind of the, the, the combination. So when you have a load on your back, you're uh, like a back squat, you, your spine's already loaded. So then a safe way to perform that movement then is to make sure that there is no movement through the spine. So if you go so deep into your squat that because of technical reasons or your, your anatomy is limited, your, your hips are tight, that you're, you kind of have butt wink is really just a bend of usually the lower spine, L5, S1, L4, L5, that lower mobile segment. And so that's one of the quickest ways to create a disc bulge, a disc wall tear, and a number of other injuries depending on the load. And, and so that's, that's partly why, I mean, I think it connects to your earlier point where people look for intensity but what you're trying to cue them on is technique and movement quality. So it's almost like you have to earn the intensity and you earn that intensity by proving that you can move safely. And even then, of course, no matter how perfect your form, there's a range based on your fitness, your prior mileage. And I would even say prior mileage, I would actually modify it to say, it's not always just a negative thing. If you train sensibly when you're younger, you actually have increased your capacity for life. Your bones are denser, mm-hmm. your joints are stronger, your muscles are actually more adaptive. So those people who used to be jocks who kind of let themselves go and then train again, their gains are always faster than the person who's Very a sure. lifelong couch potato. So then I, uh, so I would say um, it's, you know, our, some of our early, you know, as a runner, I think my, I never tested it, but I'm sure my leg bone density is way better and my muscle, my lower body musculature is way better than if I hadn't kind of done that activity earlier on. Yeah, I love that point you said in terms of earning intensity. I think that that's one big takeaway that I want people to think about today in the sense of, okay, it might not be as intense as you would like it to be, but there's other ways to create intensity in a far safer way. And and like you said, you have to do that risk reward ratio as well. And I think as much as we can minimize the risk and do everything that we can to maximize the reward, like those are the 
exercises maybe where we want to go hard in terms of intensity and those other ones where the risk is slightly on the higher end and the reward is you know somewhere there or thereabouts that's where we've got to just kind of check ourselves for a moment and just determine what we're going to do with our exercise in relation to our long-term goals of actually staying healthy and being able to stay in the gym as well so something i now want to transition onto is posture and that being one of the biggest talking points just about you know, in any walk of life, whether it be your confidence, whether it be your gym performance, whether it be, you know, walk into an interview room, for example. So I want to get started with what do you deem as good posture? Well, good posture is something that you discover rather than you impose on yourself. So what that means is people have, I think nowadays it's safe to say a lot of times we have the wrong models. I mean, a model for a lot of young men was maybe the liver king, right? Before all the <laughs> stuff that falls. And then, so I think it's that's your conception of what health should look like. But I would say good posture is, let's start with the spine. It's generally a spine position that does not increase your pain. Ideally, it could be pain-free if you don't have any injury. For the healthy spine, it's really very closely synonymous with what's called the neutral spine. Mm-hmm. It's the position where there's no special tension on the ligaments, the discs aren't especially loaded in any direction. And in that middle ground position, it actually is its most resilient. The muscles are oriented in a certain way that give it the most leverage. So it's almost like all of these, almost all of these great effects are present in that uh, position. So I would say, hey, you have no back pain. Just learning what your neutral is is going to kind of help you stay pain-free. But then then it begs the question, well, what if I do have an injury and what if my neutral hurts me? So I would say two things. One is often the times what people think is their neutral is actually an extended spine position. So they're arched, but they think they're neutral. And then they're like, well, my shoulders look a little bit rounded. That means I'm not in a neutral. But maybe that is your neutral. So there's a little bit of of rounding. And then so, so kind of this connecting those two concepts. For some people with back injury, it's a, somewhere away from neutral a little bit might be helpful. So if someone's very kind of forward bend intolerant or so-called flexion intolerant, their ideal for a time might be a little bit extended, not too much. Or for a patient who is has so-called stenosis, spinal canal stenosis, a little bit of roundedness or flexion actually might be a safer position for them. So it's really, so as you can see, I have to find that and it's really determined by what ramps up their pain and what can they uh, move efficiently in and minimize kind of those factors. How much does technology and trends influence these issues? Because there is a lot about having, you know, this nice, well, not nice, but this rounded spine. So you're sticking out your glutes a little bit, maybe if you're a woman, lifting up your chest higher, if you're a man or even potentially going through some type of surgery and getting bigger breasts, for example, where, you know, that load is going to be a lot heavier. How much is technology and fashion and trends influencing our posture compared to how it did maybe 30 or 40 years ago? Well, when I was in college, I used to give presentations at uh, the Children's Health Museum in Berkeley. And we would talk about one of the topics was body image issues and the rise of bulimia and anorexia. So I think that it's, you know, and back then, what did people have like TV commercials to kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, pollute their minds? Social media is much more insidious. And I mean, I think men and women are are very vulnerable to it. I mean, you get, you know, back then, there's been a lot of female cosmetic procedures. Now there's those procedures where men are injecting kind of muscles or tissue to give themselves big pecs. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're my appeal and my, my kind of drive to become a doctor was really more focused on the health aspects really more than the performance. And there's certainly some connection 
between those two, but I think it is harming us. I mean, people people don't really need to look so shredded and great, you know, if you're like a guy or a gal who wants to look very fit to be healthy. And there's always these kind of memes about how certain kind of even like high performers, like athletes, like Nikola Jokic or Tyson Fury, they're like, oh, these guys don't look that fit. And then this is like, well, they're not, you know, that's really not what that performance domain is about. So I think people have confused ideas in general about even just performance, like what what's very high performing versus uh, what looks like who looks like the baddest guy in the room and who really is the baddest guy or girl in the room. We have the wrong, many of us have the wrong uh, models and heroes is kind of a, a statement I heard someone say the other day. It's like we have the wrong, a lot of us have the wrong heroes. So then, and, and then so this looking a certain way is actually one of the chunk values. It focuses on the external, it focuses on the superficial and and then a lot of the kind of the understated thing, it, I think some social media people are talking about it is, for you know, for some people, their idol is a movie star with you know who got very shredded all of a sudden, and then there's a good chance that some of them at least are using performance enhancement that used to be purely the domain. So then the idea of how a person could look and look health, um, what looks good isn't always what's healthy. And then when Absolutely. you kind of see how the sausage is made, I mean, I think there's this idea of sports purity, right? With the whole Lance Armstrong, you know, to use a, a, a kind of like an added example. Everyone wants to kind of criticize him, but what's healthy about riding, I don't know, a few thousand miles in a month, you know, across the mountains. It's not a healthy endeavor to begin with to say, and then, and I think he probably wouldn't say it, but it probably is healthier if he did some amount to sustain it and to recover than if he didn't. Like just doing that thing is actually, you know, it's considered this monumental human feat. So, so to your listeners, I'm not promoting doping, but I'm just saying that what we, we want, it's almost like we want everything, right? We want this person to be the most elite, you know, do it at all costs. And then when they do something that kind of supports kind of to feel that, then we're saying, well, that's not healthy. But this, this whole domain is generally not that healthy. And so you have to think about health versus performance. They're very different things. And an elite performance where you're willing to do anything for that 1%. And I think some of the things that they do, it's giving them way more than 1%. So you think they're going to do it. So I think that it's like there's like this kind of wishful thinking that people have about all of these different things. So if you're if you're a regular Joe and, you know, just work out enough, you don't have to look like Cristiano Ronaldo, right? And you and you won't anyway, because he has God-given genetics, he trains all the time. And, uh, you know, so he, you know, it's really, you know, some people just have, you know, amazing physical and other genetics too, on top of that. Yeah, it's wild because of, I did physique-based sports like seven years ago or so now. And realistically, a lot of that came down to maybe vanity and aesthetics and all that other type of things. But realistically, I probably got more attention when I trained a lot less and I was holding a little bit more body fat. And I also wasn't only interested in the gym and eating well. I actually had some more interest in the outside world. So what we actually think will get us what we want is not always actually what we will want, what we're, what we're going to get. Because realistically, the guy who thinks he's going to be better looking and more appealing to the opposite sex if he's got five kilos more of muscle Actually, when you go out into the real world and ask the woman or men, whatever your preference is, what they want, they actually just want someone who's kind of just streamlined and in relatively good shape and is, you know, open-minded about other things other than just how they look. And then the same for the woman as well. You know, the woman who's got her 
spinal issues because she's sticking her butt out two inches further. If you put it in by two inches and just kind of develops being more of a well-rounded person, you would have just as much attention from all these other guys. So it's, it's insane how we look at these things and we think that, you know, it's the answer to our challenges. But realistically, when we take a step back, ultimately what looks into our complete health usually gets us what we want. And we're going to take a sharp segue because I do have this question, which I'm very, very curious about, which is hanging. Hanging from a bar seems to be more popular than ever. And it's weird that something so unsophisticated and maybe quote unquote simple has gotten so much attention recently. You hear people talk about it all the time at this moment. So how beneficial can hanging just simply from a bar be for our posture, for our back pain, for our shoulder health? I would say that depends on the the fitness and injury history of the individual. So hanging is valued because it's a decompressive kind of load. And I think sometimes you'll see certain trends like you know, inversion boots, hanging, they're all kind of things that kind of pull and stretch your back out. And for certain types of injury mechanisms, it actually is helpful to hang. But then there's a lot of ifs, like, so if your shoulders are strong enough to deal with it, and your, you know, your, your grip, you want to think of the whole chain, are your hands strong enough to really hang, your elbows enough to take that pulling force, your shoulder strong enough, is your spine strong enough to take that pulling force? Because if you have uh, a lot of injured patients, they actually have some degree of what's called instability, that joint level that's injured. It's kind of slippage. It kind of can slip and even dislocate in some cases. So when you have a traction force that actually pulls your disc apart and makes an instability injury more likely. So I think that if you're not that conditioned, it actually probably isn't that safe. You actually have to earn hanging too, with kind of like a holistic type of uh, training. If you have certain types of injuries, even if you're very darn strong, you still can't do it. But then if you have an injury mechanism that is neutral to it or beneficial and the rest of that chain can handle, handle it, then hanging is a great tool. Got you. Makes a lot of sense. And I assume the prescription would be to start with just a very, very minimal amount and build your way up. Yeah, well, I would say that could be true. I mean, if traction is beneficial to you, hanging is actually kind of like a pretty big dose of traction. So it could be a case where your spine... Um, like some traction and then there's tools like that where you could kind of do it on a bench where your kind of feet are still lightly touching the ground sure so then that's called a, a park bench decompression is a tool and then um, another is some of these band holds if you're holding a band downward there's a gentle upward uh, decompression force so sometimes it's really a matter of yeah the degree of the force and how much of it you're getting yeah absolutely makes a lot of sense because it kind of gives me the idea of when people do pull-ups as a warm-up for the lap pull-down for example but not recognizing that they're actually pulling up about between 60 and 90 kilos of weight which is way more than just a gentle warm-up so i get that concept entirely and lysander this has been a super interesting conversation i'm going to wrap up with a couple of final questions the first is what impact do you want to have on the world with the work that you do i want people to have a better idea of things that will make them healthier and hopefully kind of in doing so be able to kind of lead a more functional richer life i love that and where's the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing it would be my website masterymedical.com or if they want to check out my book it's available on amazon as well as my website amazing we'll make sure that all of that is in the show notes below but lysander thank you so much for your time today thank you for your insights i really appreciate the work that you do hey thank you for your time it was a lot of fun and that was the simply fit podcast i hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode i feel inspired to improve your health and well-being be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. 
Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.